0: We are in the Blueprint series. Uh, We're nearly there this week. Next week is the last week of the Blueprint series. We will have read the whole of Nehemiah. Well done, everybody. Uh, You have stayed the course. Um, And really, I'm speaking into the microphone because really I don't need to be because with a a group this size. I'm speaking into it for podcast purposes only. Okay, so if you're listening on the podcast, you're also welcome. Petty, you weren't at church on Sunday. Anyway. So here we go, okay, we're reading from Nehemiah. This is quite a long block this week, okay, so the block was going to be chapter 11 right through the end of chapter 12, but actually I'm just going to read two kind of short sections. If you've got the Bible there in front of you, you will be able to see why we're not reading all of chapter 11 into maybe verse 27 of chapter 12, because it's another one of these list passages, all right. So I'm just reading two short little blocks, uh, Nehemiah 11, 1 to 4, and then Nehemiah 12, 27 to 31, okay. And their words will appear on the screens behind me while I read. So let's go. Now the leaders of the people settled in Jerusalem. The rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of every ten to them to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while the remaining nine were to stay in their own towns. The people commended all who volunteered to live in Jerusalem. These are the provincial leaders who settled in Jerusalem. Now some Israelites, priests, Levites, temple servants, and descendants of Solomon's servants lived in the towns of Judah, each on their own property in the various towns, while other people from both Judah and Benjamin lived in Jerusalem. And then jumping on to chapter 12, verse 27 at the dedication of the wall in Jerusalem. The Levites were sought out from where they lived and were brought to Jerusalem to celebrate joyfully the dedication, with songs of thanksgiving and with the music of cymbals, harps and lyres. The musicians also were brought together from the region around Jerusalem, from the villages of the uh, Netophathites, from Beth Gilgal and from the area of Geba and Asmaveth, from the musicians had built villages for themselves around Jerusalem. When the priests and Levites had purified themselves ceremonially, They purified the people, the gates and the wall. And I had the leaders of Judah go up on top of the wall. And that's the end of the reading. We thank God for his word, for how it still speaks to us today. Good news, everybody, right? Good news. This is Good News Sunday. Uh, You know that incredibly annoying thing that your grandparents slash parents slash mad Auntie Sandra uh, do or do used to do all the time? I should clarify as well. I don't actually have a mad Auntie Sandra. I do have an Auntie Sandra. She's not mad. She's thoroughly normal. Auntie Sandra, if you're listening to this, I'm really sorry. Uh, If you've got a mad Auntie Sandra, she will do this, however, right? That annoying thing that that some people in our world do, which is when you get a little bit of good weather, it starts, right? And you'll be kind of like, oh, it's roasting today, isn't it? Yeah, and you know, you'll know you be kind of talking about the good weather and very quickly they will descend into... Huh. You think, this weather is warm. That's nothing like the summer of 1976. And you know that thing they do, right? Because there was some legendary summer in 76. And then there's apparently another in the 80s at some stage. And every single time in my lifetime, when my granddad was alive, whenever we would say something along the lines, oh, granda, it's a scorcher today, isn't it? He'd say, huh, nothing like that summer in 76. The sun never stopped shining. And you get that sort of statement, right? The good news is... That just 10 days ago, Northern Ireland was 0.1 degrees off its hottest ever recorded temperature, right? So the good news is that you get to be that person in the years ahead, right? Whenever your kids, whenever your kind of small people that are in your world begin to say, oh, it's roasting, isn't it? You get to say, it's nothing like that summer of 2018, right? You get to be those people. Bring on old age, right? We're all now ready for it. We've got our, our catch line for younger people when they think it's hot. That's me sorted for old age. And just like every single other Christian in Northern Ireland, when the sun shines, you end up with this at the mercy of this kind of bizarre magnetic pull towards the North Coast, right? Um, and so over the last couple of weeks, we've been trying to get up the North Coast a little bit. Um, Joy's parents have a house there, so we try to go up quite a bit. So we've been over the last number of weekends, and we've been walking the prom in Port Stewart quite a bit late at night. We've just caught on as well, by the way, that whenever you're staying in your grandparents' house, they don't go out that much. So when you've got a, a child and they've gone to sleep, we kind of had this thing about nine o'clock at night. We were like, you, you guys aren't going out anywhere, are you? And they're like, no. We're like, well, we are. Like sprint out the door, right? Straight down to the prom for a walk. And we've kind of been doing that quite a bit over the last couple of weekends. And I noticed something on the prom uh, last weekend that I don't think I'd ever noticed before. And I've been on that prom Hundreds, if not thousands of times in my life. I mean, I've been going to Port Stuart my whole life. I've been walking that prom my whole life. And I guess I probably have seen it before, but I had never really seen it before, if you know what I mean. And it's the war memorial on the Port Stuart Promenade. I don't know if you even know that there is one, but there is one on Port Stuart Promenade. It's about halfway up on the kind of uh, ocean side of the prom. And I'd never seen it, right? For me, it's one of those kind of hidden in plain sight things that's in our world. So I strolled over and I began to read the names. Bacon, Boyd, Burke, Charles, Finley, and so on, so on, so on. There's about 50 names or so on the list. Names of people who lost their lives in the two great wars. And the thing is, I've probably never seen that memorial before. Because if I'm really honest, I've probably never been looking for it before. When you go to the prom, what are you looking for? You're looking for where's you know, the ice cream shop, where's the chippy, you're looking for the sunset that's kind of happening just over the sea to your right. I've not ever been looking for a war memorial before, and like so many people walk in that prom all of my life, you've probably never noticed it as well. But I know a group of people who will have noticed it, and that's people whose family line are up on that list. People who will know exactly where that memorial is. People will know exactly what that memorial says. You see, this is one of those things in life where it means very little to you or it means a huge amount to you. It's kind of one of those things, isn't it? It's deeply invisible or it's deeply visible. And I I say this because this is another list passage today, right? Uh, Nehemiah actually has five of them. We are in the last couple of lists. This is actually a couple of lists in one block, all right? We just thought we'd get them all in one day. Uh, But there's kind of two lists, but we're kind of just writing them as one today, okay? And this is the last one of the book. And looking down a list of names on a memorial I've never really seen before in the middle of Port Stewart, I was struck again about how easily I view lists like this in the Bible. Struck with just how much of a sense of oh no, here we go again. I feel every time I end up in a passage that has a long list of names, or in the case of Nehemiah, it was like building materials at one stage, or kind of scale of things. You know, you end up in the Bible some of these things, and it was eight cubits wide by four cubits deep, and da, 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 you know, it's got all these details, and you sort of think, oh, all right, switch off, cut to the end, you know. And I, I realize how easily I don't read them. I realize how easily I skim them. I realize how easily I view them as uninteresting or as inconvenient or as not a key part of the story. And yet looking at a war memorial this week and thinking of the great sense of pride family members must feel when they look down that list and see a grandparent or a great-grandparent or an uncle or great-uncle or whatever, you know, some member of their family, the great sense of pride when they read a name and the name of somebody who paid the ultimate price in two world wars, I began to think to myself, how would it have felt to be the family line or the kin of these people in these lists today? How would it have felt They wouldn't be uninteresting or unimportant anymore, would they? That's your kin. That's people who made the courageous decision. How incredible to read records years on that remind you that your family had the courage to go. That your family followed the plan of God. That your family said yes when no was the easier option. Their sacrifice, their courage is your story, is our story. Because these are the people of God stepping in to inhabit the city of God in a new season, right? So if you've been following the story of Nehemiah, um, I'm not going to get back into it today. But if you know anything about the story of Nehemiah, the reality is Jerusalem is in wreck and ruin. Nehemiah feels the call of God. He goes to Jerusalem. He, he raises people to help him. They rebuild the city. And then after they've rebuilt the city now, they've been talking how they might reform the people that are in the city, okay? And lists like this are incredible because they point to the incredible humility of the people of God and the wonder of the church. What do I mean? Well, I mean that the story of the Christian church is far more enriching and real than just a highlight reel of all the big name leaders, movements and events. The story of the church is far greater, it's far more enriching than just the highlight reel. You know, the Moses and the Noahs and and the Nehemiahs of the Bible, right? It's far more enriching than just the highlight reel lists. The story of the people of God is not just about the big, well-known leaders and stories. The real story is about the millions of unremembered, often unmentioned, yet remarkable, faithful, committed believers who have sacrificed and served. Without them, there is no church history. Without the millions of people whose names are probably never recorded, there is no church history. Without them, there are no highlight-worthy big stories and headline leaders. And I love that the purposes of God run right through the hearts and actions of not just those who seem to play the big parts, but also those who play the smaller parts. I love that the purposes of God are no more diminished in the lives of those who play supporting roles. And lists like this remind me of that. A reminder, a vocal archive of those who, though they may never have whole books like Nehemiah to memoir their lives, they led all the same where they were. Last week we were digging into city values, right? We were looking at kind of rules and regulations and directions um, that were kind of at the heart of the reformation of the people of God, okay? So you've got the city, what the heck do you do with the city, right? It's like if somebody gives you a new device and you get a new car, you have to kind of figure it all out again, don't you? Like, how do you use it? What's the best use of this? How do I utilize this thing to its full potential, right? And that's exactly what they're trying to do, Okay. So they're digging into the values. And this week, people's personal values are up on show. It's their actions that are going to speak this week. These people were eyes up, hearts open towards God. And that's what made them a people of purpose. And really quickly today, because we wanted today to be kind of a shorter service, a little shorter family gathering. Really quickly today, I think there's just two things for us to look at. The first is that they are hearts open. They're hearts open people. We were growing up, my brother and I pretty much lived for back garden football, right? If you had brothers back garden football, it was like an Olympic sport, right? It was played to Olympic standard, or at least you thought it was Olympic standard, um, and it was taken seriously, like I mean seriously like regular grazed knees broken bones crying was a daily occurrence like and, and we did like all of the celebrations of the 90s were recreated in the back garden like cleansmans, right shirt over the head that happened too. um Eric Cantona collar up before like smashing it in the top corner all of those things happened, right back garden football it was incredible and we invited just about every person that lived in our street into our back garden we grew up in a man's uh, just down, down the Antrim Road. So we had this massive back garden. And mum and dad had this thing where, no, you couldn't go out into the street. It was quite a busy road. And a uh, short time after we moved in, a, a small child actually was knocked down and was seriously injured. So the whole time we were growing up, mum and dad were like, no, you will not go out in the street. So we kind of figured, fine, we'll invite the whole street in. So we had all of these kids in our back garden every day playing football, Right. And it was fairly inevitable, right? We all know what's going to happen once you start playing in the back garden, that at some point the ball is going to get kicked over the hedge, right? And that sounds fine, except on one side there was somebody called Mrs. Martin. And this is a big deal, right? Because we didn't like Mrs. Martin very much, and Mrs. Martin really didn't like us. We know that because she told us she didn't like us, right? In fact, I think she used the word hate at one stage in regard to us... And cinema over the hedge right the kind of game was going great, it was flowing. we were all like celebrating goals wildly, everyone's having a blast, bogs over the hedge, and it's like this instant like. Shoulder slump. Everyone goes, oh, no, we know what's got to happen now. And the bargaining would begin, okay? You'd straight away start to go into, mate, I went last time. Or it would sort of go along the lines of, came off, you lost. And things like that would sort of be said, right? And if that didn't work, then you'd sort of, you know, you begin to reason, mate, technically it was your fault. Shouldn't hit that volley first time. Or things would be said like, if you go, I'll be your best friend. You know, those sorts of things get said just to try and get people over. I mean, negotiations and blackmail didn't work, it went to rock, paper, scissors. And eventually one summer we decided, well that's not really fair either. So we're just gonna draw, we're gonna draw lots, right? We're gonna we're gonna get straws and we're gonna draw straws. And we all know when you draw straws, somebody's gotta draw the short straw, right? And the thing is that the start of Nehemiah feels a little bit like that. Right, we read this in the first couple of verses. Now the leaders of the people settled in Jerusalem. The rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of every ten to live in Jerusalem. While the remaining nine were to stay in their own towns. They cast lots. They drew straws. And what's that all about, right? Well, Nehemiah's plan had went far beyond just rebuilding the wall, right? This wasn't just like a big-scale gardening project. This was a plan to rebuild the wall so that the people could be reformed. The, the, the city was important, right? He says it in these verses too, the holy city. The city was important. The city still is Important. Those of you that have taken a trip to Jerusalem can testify to that sort of sense of awe and wonder as you go to that same place. It is the holy city. It's, it was and it still is. Right. The city was important. Rebuilding it was important. Reforming the people was even more so. And part of that meant the city could return to being a place of great prosperity, right? A place where people could not only safely live, uh, start families, grow and thrive, but a place where business could happen, right? Um, While it had been a shell and a wreck, business just wasn't an option. It wasn't barely even safe to live in it. Why would you go there to do business? Nobody had any money either. They were all broke. You're not going to pick that as the place to do commerce, are you? So he wanted the place to be rebuilt so that they could do business, so that it could grow and thrive all over again. But now it was rebuilt, right? It could be a place for people to thrive. But God's city needed God's people. And the reality was that though so many people had given themselves so selflessly to the project of rebuilding the city, once they'd finished, they'd return to where they'd come from, right? And when you were reading through the story earlier on, you would have noticed all the time, lots of these people were coming from these kind of small rural towns around Jerusalem itself, right? All those guys that said, we, we don't have any money to farm or we've mortgaged our fields and that, well, guess what? You don't really get fields when you're in a city. So these are all people from rural contexts around the city itself. The majority of them who got involved with the rebuilding project lived in small rural towns. Only a very small number actually lived inside Jerusalem and called it home. And right at this point in the story, Nehemiah was trying to call the people of God home. He's trying to say to them, if this is going to be the city of God, we need the people of God. And that means you've got to come here and live. And Nehemiah knew that if there was ever going to be a chance for the city to be all it could be, he needed to grow. And that meant asking people from those smaller towns to come to live inside the walls. And you might think, well, they just spent all this time rebuilding the place. Surely they're desperate to get inside the, you know, this DIY project that they've been doing all this time. Well, actually, probably not. It wouldn't have been... Easy. These people had access to land and simple farming was all they knew. It was the way they lived, they ate, they got money. It provided for them. Very few of them actually would ever choose to leave that life in the familiar communities that they had grown up in to take up city living. They weren't city living people. They were rural people. For most of them the move would have been traumatic. It would have been awful. Moving from rural to urban, it was a costly transition from the open countryside to the kind of confined and restricted life of living in the city. It meant leaving their homes, their wider family, their neighbors, their work, their friends and familiar locations and setting up a new life in a radically different environment. So they cast lots. That's why, as you read those verses, they're now casting lots. Now, don't worry, this isn't some sort of form of Old Testament gambling, okay? That isn't what's going on here. Actually, whenever they cast lots, it was one of the ways by which God's people in that time tried to discern God's will. It was kind of a way of hearing from God. If if you cast lots and you got picked, that was God's will for your life. That's kind of what they believed at that time. One in ten of them was going to go. And the way that they decided to go was by casting lots. How incredible is that? When I read that, I don't read that and think, man, they were like primitive, silly people who would do such a big life change on such amount of chance. But how incredible is it, the massive life change leaving all they'd known at the mercy of lots. And yet, they gave their yes to God's purpose, even if they'd rather have stayed where they were. But they weren't the only group, right? The the people that cast lots and drew the short straws. They weren't the only people that went, okay? There was another group that went too. This is what it says in the passage. It goes on, the people commended all who volunteered to live in Jerusalem, right? You see, there weren't just those who cast lots. Others volunteered too. You know, there's some debate as to the exact reasons, whether it was because they couldn't get enough numbers, so some people had to say, well, I'll go to kind of make up the numbers, or whether there were some people who couldn't go because maybe they were incapacitated or they They had things that they couldn't leave where they were. There's some debate as to why some of these people volunteered to go. Maybe they just felt it right to go. But there were others who just held up their hands and said, I'll go. One Bible commentator wrote this, Whatever the nature of the volunteers, they are a reminder of that vast army of people who, with no compulsion other than the the pressure of love, have willingly offered themselves to the work of the Lord. These people just held up their hand. Give up their land. Give up where they were. Give up the lifestyle they knew. Give up connections with family and friends. Give up the comfort of all that they knew and stepped into something else completely different. Just because they felt the pressure of love. They felt themselves wanting to be part of the purposes of God and the city of God. They said, I'll I'll go. You see, it's purpose over preference. Purpose is greater than preference. And this is an awesome challenge to us, right? Purpose is greater than preference. It's an awesome challenge to us because we live in a world that is all about our preferences, isn't it? The ads that we see now are pretty much targeted all of the time. We were actually driving in to buy Elle her first pair of proper shoes at one stage. And we were talking in the car about going to Clark's, right? We, had, like, we hadn't Googled it. We hadn't done anything. We were literally talking in the car about going to Clark's. When I got out of the car, opened up my phone, turned onto the Facebook app, scrolled down about you know, three posts, Clark's ad with baby shoes. How does that happen? Like, the ads that we see increasingly are absolutely what you want to see. They're based on your shopping and your preferences and the things that you're looking at, right? Your ads are targeted. The feeds let us see only what we want. Their fast food is how I want it, when I want it. It's coffee, exactly our way, extra hot, extra shot, almond milk. It's new cars with endless lists of customizable options. It's a million Airbnbs in every single city that we will ever go to. It's 25,000 different types of cereal, it's a swipe left, swipe right culture, isn't it? It's a swipe left, swipe right culture. And we so desperately long for purpose in the middle of all of this preference. Saidi, a 12th century Persian poet said, every being is intended to be on earth for a certain purpose. And it's still the same today, isn't it? We still live in the reality of that statement all of these centuries later. The problem is that the narrative of our time is that our purpose for which our world believes is only found in happiness, right? Happiness is the metric of success in our world, right? Nothing else, just happiness. It's found right through the heart of our preference. That's what we believe. Do whatever makes you happy. Do whatever you want. Do whatever feels good. My way, my way, my way, my way, my way. And the thing is that so often, even for us who have given our lives to Jesus, we long so deep in the heart of who we are to find our place in his purposes, don't we? For our lives, our work, our passion, our gifts, our abilities, our opportunities, the things that make us who we are, we long to find them in the heart of God's purpose. We so long to find our place in a story bigger than ourselves and our place in his purpose. And this is such a reminder today that God's purpose can often land outside our preferences. God's purposes often lands outside our preferences. What if God's, God, what if God's your place in God's purposes in this world lay outside of your preferences? Would it still have your yes? Would you still say you're in? If it lay outside of the things you wanted to do, you know. I think one of the encouragements of this passage too. Is that the story of Nehemiah makes no distinction in this passage between those who are chosen and those who choose. This part of the passage makes no distinction. It says that there are those who draw lots and it says that there are those who volunteer, but it also says that all are commanded. Whether they draw the straw or whether they say, "I'm in, all are commanded." And this is kind of how it's always been, right? There have always been those who have felt called, felt chosen to complete some work or play some part to do some sort of project, right? Usually deeply aware of their own inadequacies, usually completely ready to run in the other direction. They reach the point of, I can't not do it with their lives, don't they? If you've ever felt the call of God or the uh, compulsion or uh, a sense of God moving in your life towards something. Most people, now, maybe you're one of these deeply courageous people that like hears God speaking. It's like, yep, I'm there and straight in. But for most of us, we don't do that. We start to like reason it. Well, maybe, maybe if this and that. May, and maybe if you know God came through with the resources. And maybe if this changed. And maybe if I had a little bit more free time and blah, blah, blah. And eventually, God, when he keeps in your case, you reach the point that you say, well, I can't not do it, and you jump. Lots, cast, chosen, right? But there have also always been people who looked on and they heard the cry of the world, their world, the call of the purposes of God. They realized that men and women were urgently needed for the work and they offered themselves freely to be used as and where the Lord cared to call them. Those who looked around and saw the need and may not Even have known where to start and yet said, I'm in, all the same, volunteered, chose. And when you look at the story of the Bible, there's examples of both of these people. Gregory the Great, who wrote in the late 6th century, made the distinction between Jeremiah, who was chosen, and Isaiah, who chose. And all the way through the Bible, there's people who just held their hand up. They may not have had all of what they humanly needed to do, whatever it was they were doing, but they just held their hand up and said, I'm in. Similarly, there are also people who heard like calls in the night, signs, wonders, big things that said, no, it's you and I need you to go. I speak so often to people about purpose. I would say it's one of the big things, especially with millennials and young adults. We spend a lot of time kind of talking through what am I meant to be? Who am I? What is God doing with me? Where am I meant to go? What am I meant to give myself to? Who am I meant to give myself to? We run into all of the big purpose questions all of the time. I listen so much to people as they long to find their place in the purposes of God and long to be chosen. Most of them long for a call. Most of them long for kind of a sign or some like indelible thing that happens in their world. And they're like, I know it's me. I know it's a thing. And now I know I need to go. They're longing for that, aren't they? And God does that, right? Maybe some of you have felt that yourself in your life. I know for myself, the call to kind of come and do what we're doing here, that was something that eventually I reached the point of, I can't not do it. Now I've got to go. How do we do it? No idea, but I know it's me and I know where we're going, right? but what if for others it comes as you volunteer? What if for others you've got no idea of what it is you're being called into? You have no idea where you're going, but you just know it's in you to say, okay, I'll go. I don't really necessarily know why. I don't know all the details, but I'll go. You know, for all of us, the call is always to surrender, whether chosen or chose. It's our surrender that Jesus is looking for. Those walking in the way of Jesus are in the way of surrender. What if the purpose of your life was on the other side of your preference? Are you still in? God's people are hearts open, but finally, as we finish today, God's people are eyes up. Their hearts open, but their eyes up people, right? If you spend much time around me, um, most people tend to tell me that I only speak in superlatives, right? I'm told that it's the only way I know how to speak, right? Uh, and apparently, I, um, I, don't, I don't know if it's like the dairy thing that's in my blood because I find that dairy people, I mean, I know Andy McSparren was here a minute ago. He speaks exactly like this, okay? Dairy people seem to only speak in superlatives as well, right? And by this, I mean that I've realized actually most people are right when they say I only speak in superlatives because I will th- say things like that was the, there's Andy, yeah. Things are the worst thing ever, right? Like, I will say things like that, or I'll say, this is the best thing I've ever seen, best thing I've ever tasted, this is the best coffee that there's ever been, right? I tend to speak like that all the time. I'm not apologizing for it, by the way, it's just a thing, you got to deal with it. You'll kind of you'll learn to, to kind of know, to gauge with it anyway. Anyway, deal with it, it's just the way I am, right? And it's probably the best way to be. I'm just joking. Anyway, for that reason, right, this part of the passage really resonates with me, right? Because chapter 12, 20, verses 27 through to 47, it's just laden with superlatives, okay? There's loads of them in there, right? So they don't just celebrate. They celebrate joyfully, verse 27. There's not just choirs. There's large choirs, verse 31. It's not just joy. They have great joy, verse 43. And they don't just sacrifice. They make great sacrifices, verse 43. It's laden with superlatives. But then I shouldn't exactly be surprised, right? Because earlier on, whenever we were in chapter, chapter 9, it was all of the same sorts of language. So there's this outpouring of gratitude for all God had done. They'd just finished the building project in chapter 9, right? And Nehemiah spoke of the people's thankfulness for God, for his great goodness, 9.25, gracious gifts, 35, great mercy, 31, great compassion, 19. This is superlatives' narrative. It's not just thanks for the mercy. It's thanks for the great mercy. Thanks for the great goodness. It's a superlative passage because worship is a superlative action. It's a superlative passage because worship is a superlative action and eyes up people are people of superlatives' actions. In this moment there is worship in the city of God. Yeah, I know. Whenever you read it, it sounds like there's an awful lot of ceremony, and there is, right? There's people in robes. There's large choirs, two of them actually. There's people kind of walking and doing processions. There's all sorts of probably quite weird things. I what, somehow I don't really know how, but I ended up being part of like the St. Patrick's Day procession one year, and like it was a whole like I mean I've grown up in the Presbyterian Church my whole life. I have no idea what Church of Ireland people kind of do, right? And, and this was like peak Church of Ireland weirdness. There like people with staffs and like everyone had very grand robes on and it was like just the weirdest thing and i found myself arriving with two friends who were also like involved we were praying a prayer or something like that in the big service in down patrick cathedral and uh, i found myself and i arrived and i looked i got out of the car and i went Oh my goodness. And looked around and, and Jasper, who was with me, was like, mate, it's all right, you'll get used to it. And I was kind of like, mate, this is horrendous, right? So the service happens and we go out in this procession around down Patrick and you're like walking through these like fields and everything, right? And this guy's like got a big staff and I'm walking behind and I'm like, under no circumstances will I ever be carrying that staff, right? And then approximately like two minutes later, and now, and like into like a roving microphone. Someone had like a portable microphone. They were like, and David Dickinson will now take up the staff. And now I find myself like this complete muppet walking through the street with his staff, like through like pouring down Patrick with his staff. And then something else happened that they were I I said similarly to Jasper well that's over. I am never doing this. And they were like, David Dickinson will know. And I was like, are you joking me? And it was like that sort of thing. And I sort of wonder whenever I read this passage if it's the same. They invite all the Levites back in. They tell all of the priests it's High church ceremony, right? There's two large choirs. They walk the walls. There was a pattern. When you read on through verses uh, on through 27 through 47, you'll see that there was a very definite pattern, a direction. They had a plan for where they were going to go. When they arrived, they were going to split off and go in different ways around the city and take off different kind of locations around different gates, different kind of landmarks around the city as they walked, right? A ceremony. But at its heart is worship. And really they were gathering for three things. And it says it right at the start of verse 27. This is what it says. The dedication of the wall of Jerusalem. The Levites were sought out from where they lived. And they were brought to Jerusalem to celebrate joyfully the dedication with songs of thanksgiving. And with the music of cymbals, harps and lyres. They were there for three things, right? They were just there for three things. All of the ceremony, all of the stuff that you read through that, really they were just about three things. The first thing was dedication. And we were here a number of weeks ago dedicating a number of babies in our church. It was to hold them up, be thankful for them before God, to say thank you for all he'd done, for all he was doing. And they were there for dedication. They were dedicating themselves as the reformed people of God in this rebuilt city in this time. Dedication was part of it. The second part of the purpose, as it says there, um, they were there to joyfully, the dedication was songs of thanksgiving, right? So they're there for thanksgiving. Their worship was about dedication. It was also about thanksgiving. You see, for all of God's incredible (laughs) provision, protection, and presence on the journey. We know because we've been reading the story just how hard it had been. Thanksgiving, by the way. Is a repeat in this passage. If you read on, you'll see that it comes up, verse 27, verse 31, verse 40, again and again and again. Give thanks, give thanks, give thanks. It speaks each time of it. Why? Well, I think that it keeps talking about giving thanks to remind us that thankfulness is not expressed in a blanket statement. Thankfulness is not a blanket statement thing, is it? We all know the incredible blessing it is in our lives. Not when somebody says just, thanks for the birthday present, mate. When somebody says, thanks for this that you got me. This is how this has enriched my life. This is how I've used it all the time. We've really enjoyed using it this summer. Thankfulness is not a blanket statement thing. They would have been thankful for all of the things that God has done. It's a specific thing. Our thankfulness to God should be itemized, not generalized. We have so much to be thankful for, so we should thank him a lot. It was about dedication. It was about thankfulness. And finally, it was about celebration. For this was a moment to celebrate all that he'd done, finally finished, people coming back in, dedicating themselves to their future. This was a moment of celebration. You know, there's so much talk, so many articles written, so much argument and hurt and bitterness and division over worship in our time, isn't there? In just about every generation, there's been hurt, argument, and bitterness. But the reality is, it's not as if it's created better worshippers, has it? It's not as if all the argument, all of the falling out, all of the stuff has created better worshippers in the end. Why? Because worship is something that is beyond ourselves. It's beyond ourselves. Worship is what pleases God, not us. That's the point. The people of God wanted to offer praise to God publicly for his guidance, help and protection and to get dedicate not only the rebuilt walls but a reformed community to his purposes. The word worship is actually, it's, it's worth-ship really, isn't it? Worship is worth-ship. The word describes those acts of the mind, heart and will whereby we gratefully acknowledge the worth of our God. William Temple said this, Adoration is the most selfless emotion of which our nature is capable and therefore the chief remedy for all of that self-centeredness, which is our original sin and the source of all actual sin. Worship is selfless. It's beyond ourselves. Worship is surrender. See, the people of God in a new season are eyes up, hearts open people, and this is who we are and who we're being made to be, greater than our preferences, beyond ourselves. new season, new surrender. And I wonder, just as we finish, I wonder uh, if that's what today is. I wonder if today is time to surrender again. I wonder if our purpose, your purpose, in the great story was found, giving ourselves again and again and again to something (laughs) beyond our preferences, and seeing and seeking beyond ourselves. I wonder if the call again today is for eyes up and hearts open.